as Kate's already kind of told the kids, we're going to be um, looking at the letters. We have been in this series um, about the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> long story short, um, looking at what, what I call the shelves of Scripture, how the Bible fits together, and how it all kind of how each part builds another part. So I'm excited to be with y'all today as we talk about um, how the Scripture all 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 plays together. The Bible starts, obviously, in Genesis, and the first part of the Bible is the law. And the law really sets the tone because the law forms the covenant community. All of the Bible is about the covenant that God makes with us, how God forms us, how God redeems us, how God saves us, and then how God chooses to use us first as the Old Testament, the Old Covenant people, to teach and show the path of salvation. Now us as the church. So it starts with the law. And the law forms the covenant community of the Old Testament. And the covenant community of the Old Testament have a lot of primary duties, but primary among them is to be the people through whom the Messiah comes. That's why one of the interesting things we see between the Old and New Testament is the fact that in the Old Testament, there are all these laws that they have to follow. Well, we see in the New Testament that Christians aren't obligated to follow those, all those laws. We see in Acts chapter 10, as a matter of fact, the, the, the sheep fall from heaven, and God tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, God, I can't eat these things. These things are unclean, and I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. How can I do this? And we're told quickly thereafter that the ceremonial law, that's a lot of the purity codes. Uh, don't eat this, eat this. Wash your hands this way. Those purity codes have been fulfilled because the purity codes were given specifically to mark the Jewish people as the people through whom the Messiah would come. Once the Messiah in Jesus Christ has come, those purity codes, those purity laws, though we're no longer bound by those. We see that in Acts chapter 10. We see that in Acts chapter 15. The Levitical impurity laws are no longer binding to us as Christians. However, what we are still bound by is the moral law. And the moral law can be distilled down to the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments can be distilled down to love of God, love of neighbor. Because if you love God, you're going to keep his name, you're going to keep his, his promises, you're going to keep his name. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder your neighbor, you know? The Ten Commandments can be distilled down to that, and we see that in Jesus. What did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. On this hinges, on, as Jesus says, on this hinges the law and the prophets. In other words, all the law and prophets distilled down the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments distilled down to love of God, love of neighbor. So as Christians, we're not bound by the Levitical or purity laws, the food, the things like that, but we are still bound by the moral law. That has not been done away with. So we're gonna talk a lot about that this morning in our text because today, so the covenant community is formed by the law, the histories and the wisdom. We see the covenant community live out its life together. Then we see the prophets where we see, okay, how are we, the prophets call the people to account for how they keep the covenant. Then the Gospels and Acts, where we see the new covenant given to us in Jesus Christ. Now we get to the letters. So we're looking at Paul. We're looking at the letters today, both Paul's letters and the um, and the more general epistles in the back. So our text today, we're actually going to be looking at two different passages. One from Paul's work, and then one from James. We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, and then James chapter 2, verse 24. 
where the word says this. This is Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. Not the results of works, so that no one may boast. So it's by grace we've been saved, not by works. Okay, now on to James. James 2, 24. You see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, we fixed now fun, y'all. So Paul tells us, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Then James says, I actually is by works too. So what does that mean? Stick a pin in that. We're going to get there in a second. First, let's talk about some big picture stuff. Our, our team just went to Honduras. And part of the, you saw this in the bulletin before our, our team went to Honduras. You saw we wanted letters to be written to the team as encouragement, as, as, as laughter, as, as ways to remind them of back home. I've been told that, and I think this is true, I have no reason to doubt that, the, the, the letter I wrote to Honduras this year was probably the greatest letter ever written in English history. Would that be an accurate statement? Uh, that, that, that it, it's, that, that's just what I have heard. That, that people are saying, people are saying. Yeah, I heard it was the best letter ever written. Yeah, Rusty, that's just what I've heard. What I've heard. I, I mean, I, I'm not saying that's true. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, it's going to get there in time for next year's trip. That's right, exactly. Yeah, so we, letters, as, as Kate said during the children's moment, letters are, who doesn't like getting a letter, y'all? Even as adults, we like getting letters, don't we? Um, there, I mentioned the happening that's been going on. The happening is a, as a youth version of renewal weekends like Crisillo or Emmaus. And part of Emmaus or Crisillo, if you've ever done that, involves letters. When I took my Crisillo retreat years ago, I still have all the letters I was given in a drawer in my desk. I, I'm sentimental. Holly's not sentimental. She would throw away anything that's not nailed down. Whereas I would keep, uh, Kate can tell you, my, I had to redo my office and she had to fight with me to throw away stuff because everything has meaning to me. I'm, I'm a sentimental sap. I keep everything. My wife is cold hearted. She throws away. Okay. That's the way it works in every family. One spouse, usually sentimental. One will throw away everything not nailed down. I'm sentimental. We've had, to, we've had to write on envelopes for Holly, do not throw away, then in parentheses, this means you. <laughs> like, that's how we are. So I love those, I, I love letters. I, my parents, my, my dad in particular was not a particularly sentimental person, not a particularly emotional person. He was one of those old school guys who just didn't throw around the phrase, I love you. I have a letter in my Bible that he wrote me when I graduated where he told me he loved me. Like I've kept it for all these years because it meant so much to me. We, I, many of us do enjoy letters. Letters are beautiful and powerful things because they are typically very personal, particularly in this efficient world we live in, a world of text messaging and of emails, of Facebook, Twitter. A handwritten letter, that's a big deal. Like I have terrible handwriting. If you ever got a letter from me, you know that. I, I joke that some people speak it in unknown tongues. I write in them. And I always tell folks, when you get a letter from me, it's always the thought that counts <laughs> because you're not going to be able to read it. That's Paul's letters. That's the letters we're talking about. They were that. 
they were letters that Paul, they were literal letters that Paul wrote. Paul did not write them all himself. He dictated them typically. You'll see he would sign the, he would typically sign it. Like in one of the letters it says, look how large my handwriting is when I sign this. So Paul would dictate these letters typically to one of his, he was in jail when he wrote a lot of them, usually to his jailer. He would dictate them. They would write them and they would literally deliver them to the churches. Let's talk about how Paul did ministry. It calls, in the letters we're going to look at, there are two types of letters. There are Paul's letters, and then there are what's called the more general or Catholic letters. You know, in our Apostles' Creed, we say the Holy Catholic Church. That's a reminder. Catholic, in the traditional sense of the word, is not referring to a denomination. Catholic is referring to the universal church. Paul's letters are very specific, written to specific churches, typically are specific people, typically for a specific purpose. Paul's letters are very personal. The more general are Catholic, Catholic meaning universal, letters are written to the more of the church at large. That's where we're going to get into the difference of these two passages we, we talked about. One is specific, one is general. So, the way Paul did ministry, if you read the, the book of Acts, Acts talks about this. Paul did ministry in this way. Paul was coming to a town. He would start off by going to the synagogue. Remember, Paul was Jewish, and most of the early Christians were Jewish. Paul would go to the synagogue. He would preach. They would beat him up, kick him out of town, and leave him for dead. The next day, he would get up, go back into the town, and gather the ones who heard his message, and would start a church from there. Paul went all over the world planting churches. In fact, most of the churches that we see in the letters he wrote to were churches that either Paul helped start or Paul was very instrumental in their growth and their health. That, and so that is where I am uh, an ordained pastor. Um, ordination came into, this, uh, into, into being in this way. In the olden days, those biblical days, you didn't know if the preacher that came into your town was crazy or not. They were wandering itinerant preachers. So ordination came up as a way where you could, the, the preacher who walked in the town could say, I was ordained by so-and-so. And the church could say, oh, okay, well, they teach correct doctrine, so we're going to listen to you. You basically have so-and-so's blessing. You have Athanasius' blessing or Irenaeus' blessing. Okay, you are orthodox, you believe right. Or if they would say, oh, I was ordained by so-and-so, they say, oh, that guy's a heretic, so we're not going to listen to you. There was a lot of division over what was correct doctrine and what was correct belief. We have all this stuff handed to us. They were figuring it out on the time. The letters were like a real-time conversation about what Christians believe. Paul would come into town. Paul would preach. Paul would either help strengthen the church or Paul would start the church. Then Paul would move to the next town. So he was going. He was moving. A rolling stone gathers no moss. Paul was on the move. So Paul would move from town to town to town. But then what would happen is the next preacher would come in and they may preach a gospel contrary to Christ. Look at um, what Paul said, rather. Look at Galatians. Galatians, where he says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? If, if, a God, if an angel of God comes to you and preaches a gospel different from what I preach to you, let them be cursed. Paul would leave, another preacher would come in. Sometimes this preacher would preach things that Paul agreed with. Sometimes they wouldn't. That church would then reach out to Paul and say, Paul, what about this? Paul, what about that? And Paul would then write the churches back and would answer the questions they wrote him about. And you will often see that change in the letters. In Corinthians, 
Paul says, I think it's about chapter seven, he says, now to the matters that you've written me about. Paul is literally answering the specific questions that the specific churches had. Paul's letters are very personal, very specific, and very purposeful. That's what Paul's letters are. The general letters, Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, those are Jude. Those are more general letters written to the church at large about bigger picture issues. Paul's are specific. The general letters are very very, very broad, very universal. So, but these letters are specifically that, specific letters written to specific churches for specific purposes. The gospel, these letters, here's what they are. We're gonna unpack in just a second what they all are. We're gonna walk through every one of them just real quick. But here, here's what they are. These letters, first off, are inspired and were regarded as scripture in real time. Peter, in one of his letters, Peter, in one of his letters, says this. Paul's, Paul's, uh, Paul's work, like other scripture, can often be hard to understand. Sometimes we play a false game. We try to pit Peter against Jesus. Oh, well, Jesus said this. I'm sorry, we try to pit Paul against Jesus. Oh, well, Jesus says this. Paul said this. Paul's works are, in many ways, the first theological works, first books of reflection, upon who Jesus Christ was. But Paul's letters were in real time regarded as scripture by the early church. They began to, in fact, Paul's letters predate the gospels. Many of Paul's letters were written in the 40s and early 50s. Mark was the first gospel written. It was written about 55 AD. So Paul's letters actually predate the gospels. For the earliest church, Paul's letters were the first reflections on Jesus. They knew Paul's work in many ways before they even knew the teaching of Jesus in the gospels. So Paul's letters were seen as scripture right off the bat. They were authoritative right off the bat. They had value and credibility and meaning to the early church right off the bat. So they were seen as inspired scripture from day one. They were books of theology, particularly you look at a book like Roman. I'll never, I'll never forget. Um, I'd been here a couple of years, and um, some of y'all been here for a while. Remember Dave Robertson? D- Dave, Dave was a beloved member, passed away a few years back. And I was visiting with Dave before he died. He said, Andy, if you could only read one book, one chapter of one book of Scripture for the rest of your life, which one would it be? Not, not one book of Scripture, but one chapter from one book of scripture, what would you read? I said, oh, Dave, that's a good one. <laughs> you you got to give me a day to think about this. That's a good question. So I went home and pondered it. If I could only read one chapter of the Bible for the rest of my life, Romans 8. That, that's what I would read. If, I could, if that was the only book of the Bible, I could, chapter of the Bible I could read the rest of my life, it'd be Romans 8. Because I think in Romans 8, you get the totality of all the gospel and everything you really need in terms of God's love to you, in terms of sin, in terms of God's sovereignty and God's plan, in terms of God's ability to, to work in life, I, I think that gives you everything you can get. Paul's letters were reflections upon who Jesus was. He was teaching the people. It, w- it was theology. Theos is the Greek meaning God. Ology, the Greek meaning study of. Biology, study of life. Geology, study of rocks. Geography, study of maps, you know. Theology, study of God. Paul's letters 
were the first books of theology the church was ever given. Paul and Jesus are not against each other. That's one of the things that irritates me is when we pit Paul against Jesus. No, Paul is reflecting upon Jesus. And Paul is teaching about Jesus. And Paul is teaching how Jesus' words affect our lives. Paul's works were the first books of theology of the first church. And by the way, let me say this real quick because I haven't said this in here. One of the mistakes we make with the church is we, we're tempted to regard the gospels as more authoritative or more inspired than the rest of the Bible. You know, in traditional service, we stand for the gospels. So does that mean the gospels are holier are better than the rest of the Bible? No. We believe that all the Bible is equally inspired. Matthew is just as inspired as Habakkuk. Mark is just as inspired as Proverbs. Luke is just as inspired as Galatians. We don't believe the Gospels are better than the rest of the Bible. What we do believe is what Paul tells us in Galatians, that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you want to know who the Father is, you look to the Son. Well, how do we know who the Son is? We look to the Gospels. So the Gospels are not more inspired than the rest of the Bible. They just give a special insight to the heart of God because we see specifically the work and the teachings of Jesus. So how do we do that? Well, remember, Paul is writing a book of theology. Paul is, is teaching us about who God is. So Paul's letters are inspired. They are theology. And they're personal. They're personal. He's writing about specific things in specific churches for specific things. Every letter he writes is personal. So that, and that's where the confusion with Paul sits in. It's because Paul quite often will be writing about specific things that if we don't understand the context, it won't make much sense. We have to always understand the context. Now, I'll give, I'll, I'll give you a great example. One of, the, one of the befuddling things within Paul's works in Corinthians we often run into is where Paul says, um, at one point he says, I do not permit women to speak in church or to, or, or, or to have authority in church like that. We're like, oh, well, okay, right there. Okay, there we go. But yet if you go back and look a few chapters before that, Paul says, when a woman prophesies, she should cover her head. Wait, prophesying in the New Testament is preaching. So in one place, Paul says, wait, 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 woman can't speak in church. The other hand, he says, well, when they prophesy, they should cover their head. Huh? Which is it? But Paul, Paul is, you got to know the context. In the context, what was happening, you don't want to go to the movies with me, ever. You never want to go to the movies with me, ever. Here's, here's why. You know what I don't do the entire time I'm at the movies? Shut up. I'm talking the entire time. I'm like, ooh, ooh, that's like in that movie, particularly in Marvel or Star Wars. I'm like, ooh, ooh, that's like in Clone Wars when that happened. Like, I'm, I'm, my wife hates me. She loves me, but she hates me. You don't want to go to the movies. You don't want to go to church with me either. Because I'm going to give running commentary. Like, if I'm not preaching, don't sit beside me because I'm going to offer running commentary the entire time we're in church together. When Paul says, I do not permit them to speak, what Paul is talking about is people were in church were being disruptive. That's why I always read the whole thing. Paul says, if you have a question, wait till you get home and ask it. Paul was not talking about women preaching in church. Paul was talking about people being disruptive in worship. Because if Paul did not intend for women to preach in church, why would he, a few chapters before that, said, when you preach, cover your head? You've got to understand the context. Paul's writing to a specific church, answering a specific question that we need to understand the context to see what he's talking about. Paul is talking about disruption in worship, not who gets the mic. Understanding these things. Help. So when we don't understand those things, it makes Paul not make as much sense. 
That's why Paul can be confusing because so much of Paul's letters are personal and specific and understanding the specific context of them helps it make more sense. So every letter he wrote had that within it. Whereas the general letters, the Catholic letters, Hebrews, James, they're writing typically about big picture theology things. They're not writing to a specific church as much as they're addressing big issues in the church. The vast majority of the later letters are written not to address specific things in specific churches, but are written to address issues of theology, heresy, what we believe about Jesus, who Jesus was. So much of that, that's what they're trying to do there. So remember, Paul, specific Specific letters, specific churches on purpose. General letters, James, Hebrews, big picture theology. What do we really believe? Who really is Jesus? And so that's why I want to delve into real quick into uh, what, what the letters are. If you have your Bibles, you can turn, you can open up to your table of contents. If you don't, you can just follow along as I tell you what they are. Paul's letters... Starts off with Hebrews. Hebrews, I'm sorry, talked about Romans. Romans is the first letter of Paul. I said earlier how Paul helped start most of these churches or helped them grow. The one he didn't was Rome. Rome was there before Paul. So you know, you, you ever, um, you know how when you apply for a job nowadays or whatever, you're trying to make a good impression upon your potential boss. That's Romans. Roman, Rome is the big church. Rome, Rome is the big church of the empire. Paul had never been there. So Romans is a very deep and dense book because Paul showed him how smart he is. Paul's writing a good cover letter. Romans is Paul's cover letter. He's showing him, hey, I know you heard him out there preaching. Let me show you how smart I am. And that's basically what Romans is. He wrote Romans to basically impress the church of Rome. And it's a really good letter. It's really deep and might be one of the best books in the entire Bible. So that's Romans. First and second Corinthians, Paul loved the church of Corinth. But you parents know how you love your kids so much, but sometimes you want to pinch their heads off. That's first and second Corinthians. Paul loves this church. But at one point, Paul tells them, do you want me to come to you with a whip or not? Because when I come, I will, I will beat y'all to Jesus if y'all don't behave. Corinth, Corinthians at one point basically is Paul one step away from being I will turn this car around. I mean, that's basically what Corinthians is. And so Paul's answering specific questions that these churches are wondering about. These churches are very immature in their faith. And Paul is answering those questions. Um, Galatians is one of my favorite books in the Bible because Galatians is written to a church that is dealing with, okay, should we follow the law or should we follow grace? And you see Paul talking so much about grace there. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are great teaching books dealing with who Jesus is and answering specific questions about who Jesus is and what the law is. Then you get to Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. Those books deal a lot with the end of the world because at that point, the church was waiting for Christ to return. He hadn't returned yet. So First and Thessalonians deal a lot with, well, what's taking him so long? Why didn't he come back yet? Things we worry about, worried about today. First, Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon are very pastoral letters. These are people that Paul had mentored and poured into, and now he's helping them in some difficult places. Timothy and Titus especially, um, in the Methodist church, we call it bad appointments. They got sent to the Delta. No offense to you, Delta folks. I love the Delta. T T Timothy and Titus got, and Paul's like, 
I know it's hard, guys. I know it's hard. But I've sent you here because I believe in you. And here's what you need to teach the people. So these last few letters, Timothy, Titus, Tim- Timothy, Titus, and Philemon are letters to encourage these people. And then you have the general letters, Hebrews, which really goes into the Old Testament. James, which we're fixing to talk about. First and second Peter, first, second, third John and Jude. Those deal with correct doctrine for what we should believe in the last days. So, but I wanted, I, I wanted to, to kind of kind of put a bow on the verses I started off with, where, where, Peter, where Paul says in, in, uh, in Ephesians, that you're saved by grace through faith, not works, lest no man can boast. And then James says, you're not saved by faith alone, but by works. Which is it? The answer to that question is yes. Remember, specific questions. Paul's writing specific questions to specific people. Paul is writing to new Christians that are just figuring out what this Jesus thing is about. He's probably also writing to those that have a Jewish tradition. And y'all, we read the Bible 2,000 years later. When you see so many of the early Christians, you see it over and over again. They kept falling back into their um, Jewish traditions. The, you know why they kept falling back to these traditions? Because they did it their entire life. It's all they knew. It's all they understood. It's what their mama taught them. It's what they knew. And so it's so easy to fall back into the law. When we see Paul talking here about the law, remember we said earlier the distinction between the Levitical purity code laws and the moral law. When Paul says here you're saved by grace through faith, not works, Paul is saying you're not saved by the moral code. You're not, so you're not saved by the sacrificial system. You're not saved by going to temple on, uh, on the right day. You're not saved by the blood of bull and goats. You're saved by Jesus Christ. It's not about you doing the right things you've always been taught in that way. It is about Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. To put it in our terms as Methodist, just because you're on SPRC doesn't mean you're going to heaven. It's not about doing the stuff of church. It's about a heart transformed by Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith, lest no one can boast. In other words, we're not saved by doing the right thing. We're not saved by following the rituals. We're not saved by our actions. Because if we could save ourselves by our correct action, then Christ died for nothing. If if we can save ourselves, then what did Jesus come from, come for? It's not about our actions. Paul here is talking about that Levitical purity code that they lived out in the Old Testament. Because James says, you're not saved by faith alone, by works. What's James talking about? Remember, Paul in Ephesians is writing to a specific people that are going to be Jewish in their tradition, that are going to always default back to the law, always default back to the law, always default back to the law, always default back to the law. He's saying, no, it's not the law, it's Jesus. It's not your traditions, it's Jesus. It's not your rituals, it's Jesus. It's not this stuff, it's Jesus. Okay, James is writing to a more general church that um, says this. You know, I'm a Christian. I'm not gonna do anything different. I'm gonna say I'm a Christian, but I'm gonna keep living like I've lived. And I'm going to talk about how Christian I am, but you're not going to see any evidence of the gospel in my life. 
And that is incredibly dangerous. I, I once said one time, the hardest, the hardest thing is to be a Christian in the middle of Christendom. What, is that, what that means is this. If everybody's a Christian, nobody has to act like one. It's very hard to be a Christian sometimes when everybody says they're a Christian. And you can just do what you want to. Because what happens when everybody says they're a Christian is our faith is defined by the music we listen to and the stuff, the outward stuff we do. And I can listen to Caleb all day long, y'all, and be lost as a goose. You know? I can have all the Christian bumper stickers on the back of my car and be lost as a goose. It's not about me doing the trappings of Christianity. It's about a heart transformed by grace. That's what James is talking about. Paul is saying we're not saved by doing our stuff. We're saved by a heart transformed by grace. What James is saying is, guess what, guys? A heart transformed by grace will live differently. A heart transformed by grace will produce works. We're not saved by works. We aren't earning it. But if you are saved then your life will show the evidence of it. The best way I've ever heard this explained. Some of you may remember Frank Pollard. Frank Pollard was a longtime pastor of First Baptist Jackson. And for my money, he's the best preacher I've ever heard in my entire life. Dr. Pollard said one time, said, faith, works are to faith as breathing is to life. How often, you know, breathing is what's called an involuntary motion. We don't tell ourselves, breathe, 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 breathe. We just breathe. Like, you don't, you don't make yourself breathe. Because you're alive, you will breathe. In fact, what's one of the ways you tell somebody's alive or not? Are they breathing? Breath flows from life. Okay? It's part of the evidence you're alive. It means that, you, that means that you're living. And a live faith will produce good works. A living body will produce breath. A faith that is alive will produce works. That's what James, remember, Paul's writing to a very specific audience that's coming out of its Jewish traditions. James is writing to a bigger picture Christian body saying, if you have faith, you will have works. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. A body without breath is dead. Faith without works is dead. The, body does, the Bible does not contradict itself. Remember I said earlier how some people pit Paul against Jesus? Some people have pit Paul against James. When you go deeper and you see what they're actually talking about, they're not talking about two different things. They're talking about the same thing. Paul is telling us how one becomes a Christian. Not that we become a Christian through our works. We don't become a Christian based off the music we listen to, the service we go to, the way we vote, whatever you want to put on, whatever preconditions you want to put on to it. That does not make you a Christian. A heart transformed by the Savior, Jesus Christ, is what makes you a Christian. But then a heart transformed by Jesus Christ will show itself in its works. The body will produce breath. A living faith will produce works. I always say, guys, if you tell folks you're a Christian, and folks go, really? It's not a good sign. 
You shouldn't have to go around telling everybody you're a Christian. I don't have to go around telling you, telling you that I'm alive. I'm breathing. You're gonna, if you've watched my chest, you'll see it. Come in and come out. You'll hear my breath. You'll see me breathing. That's how your faith should be. So the question is this. If there's no work flowing from your life, if there's not something inside of you that's calling you to love your neighbor in some way, if there's not something inside of you that compels you to love God and love your neighbor, then is your faith alive? You know, if you've ever done a stress test, it's, see how, how strong you are, if you can do it. That's what checking our fruit is. That's what looking at our works are. It's not to show that I'm holy. It's to show that I'm alive. Paul is writing to individual Christians and individual churches about specific things, pointing them to Jesus. James, Hebrews, they're writing to bigger picture issues to the bigger picture church. But both of these things, y'all, and this is really what it comes down to, are calling us as Christians to be present in our world, to live out the gospel daily in practical ways that make a difference for others. The churches are called to specific places and specific people in specific times for a specific purpose. So are we. So are we. As Galatia and Ephesus and Thessalonica lived out the gospel in the specific place they found themselves, how do we? How do we live out the gospel in our work, in our play, in our free time, and all that we are? How do we live out the gospel? These letters are inspired, they are specific. And they teach us about who God is. But they call us to be faithful to Jesus above all else. So as you read them, may the grace that inspired Paul's writing of them speak to your heart. May it make you reflect upon the evidence of God in your life. And just as a living body produces breath, so may our living faith produce faithfulness. Let's pray.